0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app.
1: It is my pleasure uh, to introduce our speaker for this evening, Dr. Christian Sony, who is an interventional cardiologist and associate professor, as well as the medical director of quality and safety for the Heart and Vascular Center at UCSF. Uh, He received his MD and MBA degrees from Yale. He then came to UCSF uh, for his medicine residency, where he also served as the very first chief resident in quality improvement and patient safety in the Department of Medicine. He then stayed on uh, for his clinical cardiology uh, fellowship, followed by an interventional cardiology fellowship at UCSF, and uh, that will be the focus of his talk, Precisely What these interventionalists do. Um, He joined our faculty in 2016 uh, and serves as a practicing interventional cardiologist with a a focus on complex coronary artery disease and critical care cardiology. Um, In addition, with UCSF HEART team, he specializes in complex, higher risk-indicated percutaneous intervention procedures. And treatment of chronic total occlusions for patients with advanced coronary artery disease. These are really the patients with the most complicated sorts of blockages uh, in the arteries that Dr. Sony will teach us about tonight. Uh, Finally, he also works with the San Francisco Emergency Medical Services uh, Agency to help ensure that high-quality emergency cardiac care is delivered throughout the city and county of San Francisco. He's presented or co-authored, co-authored more than 50 abstracts. Uh, at professional meetings, uh, and serves on a number of quality improvement committees, uh, both statewide and uh, nationally. Thank you, and welcome, Dr. Sohn.
0: Great, thanks so much, Greg. It's a uh, pleasure to be here tonight and talking to you about a topic that I'm very passionate about and spend a lot of my time on, uh, which is heart attacks and the things that we can do to treat them, including angioplasty, stents, and OMI, a host of other uh, technologies. So again, thank you for, uh, for having me tonight. Uh, I have no uh, conflicts of interest or relevant financial disclosures, but as Greg said, I am an interventional cardiologist, uh, so very much uh, do a lot of uh, these uh, sorts of things that we'll talk about tonight for a living. Uh, I'm hoping over the next hour and 15 minutes uh, that uh, we'll impart you uh, about four learning objectives, hopefully to help you to gain a basic understanding of the pathophysiology of heart attacks, uh, also known in medical jargon as myocardial infarction. help you learn to recognize some of the signs and symptoms of heart attacks and the tools that we use for their diagnosis, help you to appreciate some of the therapies, both medical and procedural, that are available to treat uh, heart attack patients in 2022. Uh, And finally, I think one of the funnest parts of the talk is to help to increase your familiarity with the cath lab, uh, where we work to treat patients with heart attack, uh, and some of the tools that we use like coronary angiography, coronary angioplasty, uh, stenting, and how these various modalities are used to treat our patients. The talk is divided into these uh, seven sections. We'll start with a little bit of a background on what exactly is a heart attack, Uh, we'll dive down into the epidemiology and how common uh, these uh, uh, events occur, uh, how we make the diagnosis, what the initial treatment for medical therapies might be, uh, and then we'll transition into the cath lab. I'll give you a little introduction tour of the cath lab and coronary angiography. We'll talk about the definitive treatment, that is uh, stenting and angioplasty, and then finally wrap up with a little bit about what management and life is like for patients after uh, they receive their treatment for a heart attack. So with that said, we'll jump right in. So as uh, you all know and may have been seeing over the past several sections, the heart is one of the major organs of the body and responsible for pumping blood uh, and oxygen and nutrients to the body, but in itself needs its own blood supply. And the heart receives blood through what are known as the coronary arteries. And there is a series of uh, two major coronary arteries that come off from the aorta, the main tube that carries blood from the heart to the rest of the body. One called the right coronary artery that feeds blood to the back of the heart. And one called the left coronary artery that provides uh, a left anterior descending and a left circumflex artery uh, to the front and side of the heart. Uh, And everyone is born uh, with these coronary arteries. There are slightly different distributions uh, that uh, vary from person to person, but by and large, these arteries are extremely important in life at providing blood flow that's vital for the heart to function. However, not everything always goes right and a heart attack can occur and a heart attack or myocardial infarction specifically is uh, when the blood supply to the heart is interrupted, causing ischemia or a lack of oxygen and lack of blood flow to the heart. And as you can see in this diagram here, the blow up of an artery, there is plaque or cholesterol or atherosclerosis, which we'll talk about. The formation of a blood clot in that, and that abruptly stops the flow of blood uh, to the heart muscle. When this happens, the heart muscle and tissue does not get enough oxygen and blood supply. It starves and the tissue can start to become uh, ischemic uh, and then can die. Uh, And that essentially is a, a heart attack in a nutshell but let's actually wrap it back a little bit and start with where this process begins. So it really starts with what we call coronary artery disease. So in normal heart arteries, what's shown here on the top left, it's a tube that carries blood. Uh, it's made of three layers, an intimal uh, layer, which controls the flow of blood, a muscular, uh, thicker layer, uh, and then an outer layer called the adventitia. Uh, unfortunately, over time, various things can damage that inner layer of the blood vessel lining things like high blood pressure, cholesterol, cigarette smoking, Uh, and that can result in the formation of atherosclerosis or thickening and hardening of the arteries and a deposition of plaque or cholesterol or lipids uh, into the artery wall. Uh, And this process starts early in life, as early as childhood and can progress over the course of the many decades of life. For some patients, it may never progress past a little mild buildup of plaque, uh, but for others, that formation of plaque can continue to grow until it starts to occlude or abrupt obstruct blood flow. And in a smaller portion of patients, that plaque can ultimately result in the formation of a blood clot, which very acutely or abruptly results in obstruction of blood flow, and that can result in a heart attack. So over time, for some patients, this process of atherosclerosis Mm -hmm. can lead to ischemia or lack of blood flow and infarction, tissue death or heart attack uh, in patients. This is an actual cross-section of what one of those arteries look like. This yellow uh, uh, area here, this is the actual plaque uh, deposition. This is literally just lipid or fat or adipose uh, that is uh, being deposited into the lining of the heart vessels. So there are a number of risk factors that can contribute uh, to this, as you may have heard from uh, Dr. Long's talk uh, and others. uh, There are a number of things in life that we have control over and some that we don't have control over that can uh, lead towards the progression of atherosclerotic coronary disease. The so-called non-modifiable risk factors, that is, uh, getting older, uh, the gender we're assigned at birth, and certain genetic factors, you can't necessarily change your family, Uh, those are things that we're born with that can predispose us to higher risk of forming atherosclerosis. There are then the modifiable risk factors, the traditional uh, risks that we've clearly identified through studies over time that are linked uh, towards the progression of coronary artery disease. And those are hyperlipidemia or elevated blood uh, cholesterol levels, hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, the use of cigarettes uh, or smoking other materials, uh, and uh, diabetes, high blood sugars. These four together we know have very strong linkage towards causing damage in the heart arteries and the progression of atherosclerosis. And then there are a number of other additional uh, risk factors, which we've come to better understand over time, things like inflammation, the metabolic syndrome, um, lack of exercise, stressful lifestyle, obesity, uh, etc. that can also lead to the progression of coronary disease. And CAD really is a spectrum. Over time in life, we have these risk factors modifiable and non modifiable that may lead to plaque and cholesterol deposition. As that plaque builds up in an artery, it can start to narrow the lumen of the artery significantly enough uh, that blood flow is obstructed, and that can result in the phenomenon of angina, or the symptom uh, of coronary artery disease. So we'll take a a quick detour here just to define what angina is. It's a a common term that you may hear. uh, It's pronounced either angina or angina. Uh, And really angina pectoris is a a symptom that is perceived as a retrosternal or below the breastbone chest pain that builds gradually in intensity, usually over the course of minutes. It's often precipitated by stress, physical or emotional. Uh, It can occur at rest, um, but certainly uh, more common with exertion or exercise. Uh, In some patients, it may have a characteristic radiation, Uh, may travel from the chest to the left arm, uh, neck or jaw. And it can be associated with symptoms like shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, um, or sometimes vague abdominal symptoms. If this symptom is chronic and associated with consistent precipitants, like every time you climb a set of stairs, you get these symptoms, that would be called stable angina. And if it's new or progressive or happening all of a sudden at rest, that would be acute onset angina. And so angina often is a symptom of coronary artery, atherosclerosis, or a significant coronary disease. Progressing further on in that spectrum, when a blockage or coronary atherosclerosis becomes so severe that it completely obstructs the blood flow or you have formation of a blood clot uh, in the heart artery that completely obstructs the blood flow, that can result in a much more acute situation, uh, which is a heart attack. And a heart attack, there's many medical uh, terms for that. The term myocardial infarction or MI and acute coronary syndromes or ACS are often used uh, synonymously for that essentially myocardial infarction, meaning death of the myocardial or heart muscle tissue. So what does a heart attack actually look like? We see in sort of the lay press, uh, the idea of a a male patient clutching their chest, uh, gripping uh, over their left side over the heart. Uh, But really there are some common and some less common warning signs of a heart attack. Certainly pain, uh, discomfort or pressure in a chest is a common concerning finding. That can be associated by lightheadedness, nausea or vomiting. Uh, jaw, neck, or back pain, uh, discomfort in the arm or shoulders, and shortness of breath. If any of these symptoms occur all of a sudden, uh, that certainly can be concerning for heart attack. Uh, and notably, we've recently had a lot more uh, information and data to suggest uh, that the heart attack symptoms may present differently in men uh, and women. And so the common symptoms we often think about sweating or chest pain or shortness of breath, more common in males. Uh, where female patients may be more likely to have um, other symptoms, like dizziness or discomfort between the shoulder blades uh, or indigestion-like symptoms. Importantly, one of the reasons it's uh, so uh, uh, highly needed to recognize the symptoms of heart attacks early is that there can be significant complications for patients who have heart attacks if they're not recognized and treated early. This is a relatively busy slide, but shows some of the key downstream complications for patients who have a heart attack. If the heart attack is large enough and enough of the heart muscles damaged, that can lead to a drop in the contractility or weakening of the heart muscle. Uh, That can result in shock, the inability of the heart to provide enough blood to the body, uh, and ultimately death. Can also longer term result in a condition called congestive, chronic congestive heart failure where the body accumulates water and patients feel short of breath uh, or low energy. Uh, Additionally, a heart attack can cause electrical instability of the heart. And so there can be early or extra beats, very fast beats or dangerous beats called ventricular tachycardia that could lead uh, towards, again, circulatory collapse or sudden death. Um, And then finally, there are mechanical complications of the heart attack. If enough of the tissue uh, is injured and uh, does become necrotic or dies, that can leave uh, vital structures in the heart to start to uh, disintegrate. And that can include papillary muscles or the walls of the heart. And we can have sudden onset uh, severe valvular leakage uh, or rupture of the the heart muscle, which would allow blood to spill out of the heart into the chest. Again, a very life-threatening situation. These complications of heart attacks can occur really at any time early on after a heart attack within the first hour to few hours uh, can be the symptoms of arrhythmias. Shortly after that, the onset of cardiogenic shock usually happens within uh, 10 uh, within uh, an hour to 12 hours uh, for most patients. Uh, Stroke can be a complication uh, of heart attacks for patients who form blood clots in the heart that travel elsewhere. And then really the complications can continue out to three uh, days out to two weeks um, for patients who have very large heart attacks, particularly those with delayed recognition. So now we talked a little bit about what a heart attack is, and we will um, make a a change in course here to talk a little bit about the epidemiology uh, of uh, heart disease and heart attacks. So how big is this problem? Looking just in the United States, there's nearly 18 million uh, people who have coronary artery disease. And at age 40, the lifetime risk in men is about 50%, and for women, uh, about one in three. Uh, These conditions result in about six and a half million emergency room visits per year. uh, And of those, about 500,000 patients who have a confirmed heart attack. Importantly, not all heart attacks really stare you in the face and are recognized, of the patients who come to the emergency room with a heart attack, about 5% are sent home inappropriately from the emergency room uh, after not having their heart attack recognized. Uh, There are also about 500,000 deaths attributable per year to coronary artery disease, whether it's heart attack or the other resulting um, uh, downstream effects. And one in five of all deaths is due to coronary disease. So it continues to be one of the leading causes of death for adult men and women uh, across all races. Chest pain related, not all chest pain is necessarily a heart attack. Really, the needle in the haystack is finding which uh, patients who have chest pain are having true uh, heart pain or heart attack symptoms. The lifetime prevalence of chest pain uh, across all uh, people uh, is about 20 to 40%. It is the second most common reason that patients will visit an emergency department in the United States. Um, And again, about six and a half million visits are accompanied for chest pain and four million outpatient visits to primary care doctors uh, and other um, doctors uh, for chest pain. When we look at the presentation of patients to the emergency room with chest pain, varies very much by age. In the left side here, these are 18 to uh, 44 year olds and uh, heart attack or atherosclerosis is nowhere in the top 10 uh, for their causes of chest pain. However, for patients who are above 45 uh, years old, all the way up to the age of greater than 80, coronary atherosclerosis is the second most common reason for chest pain in these patients. And uh, acute myocardial infarction or heart attack is the fourth most common. So both uh, very common reasons in the top 10 that patients will seek care in the emergency department. So with that bit of background and epidemiology, We'll shift gears to really thinking about how do we make a diagnosis of heart attacks that we can recognize uh, the condition early, uh, invoke the right treatment, and hopefully get the best outcome for uh, patients. Well, the diagnosis of heart attack um, or uh, atherosclerosis is really made on the basis of a few important pieces of information. Uh, The first is the chest pain history, the symptoms that uh, a patient provides. And there is a variety of different sensations that folks can have in their chest and what we can divide into a lower risk or a higher risk probability of symptoms. So for patients uh, who present with the classic findings, that is a central pressure or squeezing type pain, often described as a gripping or heaviness or tightness, uh, sometimes the term of an elephant sitting on my chest is used. Uh, Those are very common and classic um, symptoms of uh, chest pain that's associated with heart artery disease or heart attacks. And those would provoke a high index of suspicion for coronary heart disease. As we move to the right here, uh, the symptoms become a little less typical. So uh, stabbing pain, right-sided pain, pain that's tearing, ripping, or burning, uh, sharp fleeting or shifting pain, these tend to be associated with conditions that may not necessarily be a heart attack. Uh, Tearing, ripping pain may be more concerning for a rip in the aorta or so-called aortic dissection. Uh, Burning pain might be associated with uh, GI disturbances like acid or gastroesophageal reflux disease. So we start with our uh, quick history from the patient and get a sense of the likelihood of ischemia based on symptoms. Our next most powerful tool is the electrocardiogram or ECG. And this is essentially a look at the electrical um, voltages of the heart, the natural rhythm of the heart from the conduction from the atria to the ventricles that you may have heard about in uh, talks over the past uh, couple of weeks. And we look at this from 12 different views with 12 so-called electrodes uh, and essentially print out this, uh, this uh, pink piece of paper, which is a 10-second look at the heart rhythm and the electrical changes in the heart. It turns out that there are some very classic uh, changes we can see on the EKG that can be suggestive of a heart attack. So a normal EKG will have these various components to it. There are deflections in the waves called the PQRS and T waves. And these each represent different parts of the heart's electrical cycle. The P wave is the electrical depolarization of the atria. The QRS, the electrical depolarization of the ventricles. And the T wave, the repolarization of the ventricular system. It turns out that in folks who are having an acute heart attack due to a complete occlusion of the vessel, this segment here called the ST segment uh, can uh, abruptly change. And that's shown on the bottom here. A normal EKG has this QRS, uh, and normal flat ST segment. But within seconds of a, a coronary occlusion, a patient will start to develop what we call peaked T waves. We'll see this uh, very abrupt change uh, up in the ST segment and T wave. Over the course then of minutes uh, to hours, that ST segment will rise and create this small tombstone appearance. Um, that's called an ST elevation. It's typically at this point that patients will be seen uh, by an ambulance or uh, in an emergency department. And when we recognize that, that's a hallmark for an acute heart attack. And then over the next few hours to days, there's a continued progression of the change in the EKG uh, that can uh, be suggestive of the ongoing damage from a heart attack. Again, here, uh, this shows just a couple of those changes. So a normal EKG here, we see that there's no ST segment change. An ST segment elevation like this, uh, that is what we call a STEMI, or ST segment elevation MI. This is classically indicative of a complete blockage of the heart arteries, and that's a medical emergency, something that even in the middle of the night, your cardiologist will come in uh, and uh, try to treat within uh, 90 minutes. We'll talk a lot more about that. Uh, Other changes like ST depressions or T wave inversions certainly can be concerning for a heart attack, uh, but these are usually slightly less acute issues. These may be suggestive that the heart is ischemic. There may be a uh, non-occlusive blood clot. There may be ongoing damage to the heart, but something that typically can be treated with medications uh, and then uh, in the cath lab within uh, the next 12 to 48 hours. As an example, here's an EKG that shows a a pretty classic appearance of an ST elevation MI. You can see here in these uh, leads labeled 2, 3, and AVF, there's these very large tombstone uh, or elevated triangular-type shape appearance in the T-wave, and this is an ST elevation MI or STEMI. Uh, This patient, if seen in an emergency room, would be uh, immediately brought to the catheterization lab for treatment uh, of their heart attack. So we've talked a little bit about the term STEMI and NSTEMI, and I just want to describe that a little bit more. So as we've said, the heart is fed by the coronary arteries. A heart attack occurs when there is a blood clot that forms in a heart artery and obstructs blood flow. If that blood clot is completely occlusive, that means it's causing 100% obstruction and no blood is passing that. That results in those ST elevations that I just showed you and that's what we term as a STEMI or ST elevation MI. This is a complete occlusion of the vessel, the heart is getting no blood. This is an emergency and needs emerging treatment uh, within 90 minutes. Uh, alternatively, if there is a blood clot uh, that is obstructing blood flow, but it is not a complete occlusion, uh, blood is still able to pass though in a limited fashion. Uh, this can be what's called an N STEMI or non-ST elevation MI again, due to a partial occlusion of vessel, and that's treated urgently, maybe not emergently. That would require admission to the hospital, immediate treatment with medical therapies that we'll talk about, uh, and then often promotes uh, a trip to the catheterization lab within uh, the next 12 to 48 hours. We talked a lot about EKGs being one tool for the diagnosis of MI. Uh, The other tool that we have are blood tests or biomarkers. So there is an enzyme called troponin, Uh, troponin is a a particular uh, protein that is inside the cardiac muscle cells. And this is a sort of blow up. You see a heart on the left here, a zoom in on what we call the cardiomyocytes. These are the individual muscle cells within the heart that contract. And as we zoom in, the contractile apparatus of the heart muscle itself is made up of these proteins called actin, tropomyosin, and troponin. And when the uh, heart beats, uh, these uh, actin-tropomyosin and troponins uh, slide over each other to cause the heart muscle cells themselves to actually contract, uh, which results in the heartbeat. When a heart muscle is uh, damaged by a heart attack or lack of blood flow, these heart muscle cells become necrotic or die. They open up and spill out their contents. And one of the things that they spill into the bloodstream is a release of that cardiac troponin. So, ordinarily, there should be no troponin in the bloodstream, but in the setting of damage to the heart, we can detect troponin. And ordinarily, as I point out here, in a reference population, there is no or a very low level of troponin. But in the setting of somebody who's having a heart attack or an acute coronary syndrome, the level of troponin will increase and will continue increasing while there's ongoing damage to the heart. And we can see essentially a peak uh, waveform distribution uh, of that uh, cardiac troponin uh, over time. So how do we integrate this data? Well, we take the clinical symptoms that a patient is uh, presenting with from low to high likelihood, We marry those with what we see on the EKG and what we see on the blood testing or troponin levels. And if we see very atypical symptoms, a normal ECG and no troponin, that's unlikely to be a heart attack. On the flip side, when we start to see EKG changes and troponin, we worry about that being a heart attack, perhaps an NSTEMI with a non-complete occlusive thrombus. Uh, Or if we see those ST elevations uh, and troponin elevation, that certainly would rule in as a STEMI uh, and would be very concerning for uh, an acute uh, event. Another uh, tool that we can uh, often use uh, is what's called echocardiography. This is using sound waves uh, to take a look at the heart, produce beautiful 2D moving images. Trans thoracic echocardiography is a widely used test in cardiology for many indications. Uh, In this particular setting, it can be helpful to understand the overall function of the heart, uh, how much a heart attack may be reducing that function, and if there are particular areas of the heart that are not moving so well. So now that we've made uh, the diagnosis uh, using the uh, patient's symptoms, our uh, uh, history, uh, the EKG and troponin, let's talk a little bit about how we start to treat patients. Ultimately, the major principle of uh, patients um, who are having an MI is that there's a demand supply mismatch of blood or oxygen getting to the heart. The heart needs an amount of oxygen, which it gets through the coronary blood flow, but due to this obstruction, the myocardial oxygen supply or blood flow is reduced. And so medical therapies can really target any of those. We can reduce myocardial oxygen demand by slowing the heart rate down, helping it relax, uh, reducing the amount of work it's doing, Or we can increase myocardial oxygen supply by improving coronary blood flow, uh, improving the blood pressure or improving the blood oxygen content. And so our therapy mainstays really are uh, all laid out on on this uh, slide here. Again, this is a heart artery. We see the sort of plaque and cholesterol or atherosclerosis buildup and the acute clot. And so our therapies for medical management for MI, most patients will get these immediately after presenting uh, to uh, an emergency department or healthcare setting. We do uh, medications to thin the blood. So that may include heparin, which is an anticoagulant and helps to uh, reduce the buildup of blood clot or thrombus. Uh, we use medications called antiplatelet agents. Um, so these are medicines that act on the platelet um, uh, fragments of cells in the bloodstream that cause blood clotting. We use commonly aspirin and a second group of medications called P2Y12. A well known one is clopidogrel or Plavix. These medicines in concert uh, act on both the blood proteins and the blood cells to reduce the formation of blood clots. Uh, we can use nitroglycerin uh, to both help expand uh, the blood arteries, so that's a dilator of the heart arteries, and also reduce the amount of venous uh, pressure back to the heart. Uh, Statin medications, very commonly used uh, to control blood cholesterol level, uh, can be helpful in the acute heart attack setting, not only uh, for blood cholesterol purposes, but also to reduce inflammation, and that's been shown to help to reduce uh, infarct size. Uh, And finally, the use of beta blockers. These are medicines that slow down the heart rate. They can reduce the amount of work that the heart's doing and reduce the heart's need for oxygen to help reduce the effect of a heart attack. So medical therapies, really for all patients presenting with a heart attack, we think of these five things. Uh, aspirin, initially a full strength aspirin, followed by 81, and that's to treat the blood clot. A P2Y12 uh, uh, inhibitor, uh, and that's again, medicines like clopidogrel or Plavix, ticagrelor or Berlinta, and again, that treats the clot. Uh, an antithrombotic agent like heparin or low molecular weight heparin, uh, once again, to thin the blood. Uh, statin medications to help to stabilize the plaque and reduce inflammation and beta blockers if the patient is not hypotensive or bradycardic, uh, so if their blood pressure is not low or very slow heart rate that can help reduce the amount of work that the heart is doing and there's been a, a sizable uh, data over the past uh, three to four decades uh, for many of these medicines that show that when used early in the setting of somebody who's presenting with a heart attack that they do have a mortality benefit other medications which are commonly used in the setting but may not have a mortality benefit. Uh, morphine or other opiates uh, can be used to help with pain. Increasingly, we're shifting away from using those because they really don't treat the underlying problem. That's a mandate on the symptom, and there, again, is no mortality benefit. Uh, oxygen uh, has its uh, pluses and minuses. Oxygen can also be uh, dangerous uh, at high levels. And so really only using oxygen in patients who have low blood oxygen levels. Uh, and then nitrates, uh, as needed, can improve supply of blood to the heart, but aren't necessarily um, beneficial to improving mortality. We talked a little bit about um, blood platelets. I want to circle back to that. Uh, platelets are the fragments of cells uh, in the bloodstream that help to recognize uh, when there is uh, an open wound or cut and help to aggregate together uh, to form uh, a blood clot. They're necessary for us to uh, ensure that we don't bleed death uh, when we get cut. Um, However, platelets also can be bad actors when they start to aggregate and form blood clots in areas we don't want, like the brain, they can lead to a stroke or in the heart, they can lead to a heart attack. It turns out that there's a number of receptors on uh, the platelets that activate them and both cause um, aggregation or uh, association with other platelets. And a lot of these targets have been worked out and medications have been developed that can uh, target each of these receptors and block the effect. And so, for example, we know that aspirin, which has been around now more than 150 years, can target the thromboxane A2 receptor and inhibit platelets uh, via that mechanism. Uh, Medications like the P2Y12 inhibitors, um, again, clopidogrel or ticagrelor, Uh, our ADP uh, inhibitors and and inhibit platelet through different mechanisms. So we can use multiple different mechanisms uh, or different medications with target different mechanisms to uh, better reduce the platelet aggregation and reduce the formation of blood clot in the heart arteries. This is a list just of some of the very commonly used medications. Aspirin, as I mentioned, that's been around for 150 years uh, used. We give a 325 or a full strength aspirin or four baby strength aspirins if somebody is uh, actively having a heart attack, and then 81 milligrams daily. Uh, And then these other agents, uh, we uh, largely use interchangeably. There are some differences uh, between them in terms of their peak effect, the way they're metabolized. Uh, But all medications now have had FDA approval for the newest one is Ticagrelor, which was approved over a decade ago. uh, And all of them have uh, gone to the generic market, so widely uh, available for most patients. So we talked a little bit about medical therapies for the treatment of heart attack, uh, but really in 2022, what we've come to realize is that opening up the blood vessel and reestablishing blood flow using mechanical techniques, um, so things we can do in the cath lab, uh, really is beneficial in the acute setting. And so that's what uh, folks like myself, interventional cardiologists are trained in is dedicated techniques to actually open up uh, blocked arteries. So the standard of care for managing patients who have STEMI or ST elevation MI due to completely occluded arteries uh, is uh, to go urgently to a cardiac catheterization lab uh, and to open the vessel with a technique that we call PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention. Uh, This is where we can perform angioplasty, that's a ballooning, and stent placement uh, of of the uh, vessel. We'll talk a lot more about that over the next few minutes. Uh, Unfortunately, not everywhere in the world, and and even in America, not everywhere is there a cath lab immediately available for patients. So for patients who live in rural areas uh, where there may not be a hospital with on-site cath lab facilities within uh, 90 minutes, an alternative uh, treatment is what we call fiber analytics. Uh, these are powerful clot-busting agents that can be given intravenously uh, and can help to break down a blood clot uh, if one is forming. In the world of stroke, we're increasingly seeing benefit uh, from these, and patients who present with a stroke uh, within a short time frame window uh, can be candidates for forvernalytics. In the world of heart attack, uh, we use them, uh, but only if a cath lab and a PCI is not immediately available. In the contemporary management of STEMI, we've really seen uh, that fast uh, recognition and rapid treatment are the keys to patients doing well uh, to having higher survivability from their heart attack and less heart damage. And so there's really been a significant emphasis on rapid recognition and treatment of patients uh, who present with ST elevation MIs. Uh, In fact, there's now for two decades been a focus on what we call the door to balloon time and that is from the time a patient hits a hospital or healthcare facility door to the time we open up a blood vessel with a balloon. Uh, Our goal is to do that in less than 90 minutes in all cases. Uh, And here in San Francisco, we actually have a much more aggressive goal in working with our EMS uh, agencies, which is from the time uh, that a patient first uh, is seen by a paramedic at the bedside uh, to the time of opening up the artery, that that entire window should be ideally less than 70 minutes. So really trying to reduce the uh, window. And the idea behind that is to uh, reduce the delay in the initiation of therapy because time is muscle. More time leads to uh, increased uh, tissue ischemia or lack of blood flow, increased loss of cardiac myocytes, and further downstream poor, uh, poor cardiac outcomes. So goal from symptom recognition to the cath lab in as minimal time as possible, and certainly door to balloon time, less than 90 minutes. And increasingly, from the field or paramedic to balloon time, now less than 90 minutes. The reason that we are uh, so uh, fastidious in trying to meet these goals is that we have seen uh, over years of data a significant benefit. As we see here on the left graph, the mortality um, caused overall and by complications like ventricular rupture or breakdown of the heart uh, has decreased dramatically as we put in place um, cath labs and bring patients to cath labs for immediate treatment within 90 days. And on the right side, again, seeing the incidence of these various um, complications like um, free wall rupture, etc. So mortality incidence has decreased um, significantly. And now, even in very elderly patients who have uh, ST elevation myocardial infarctions, 90-day or three-month mortality is around 5%, which is significantly better than where it had been about 30 or 40 years ago, up at about one-third or 35%. So we've uh, spent a lot of time talking about how we think about treating cath lab, uh, treating patients with um, uh, uh, ST elevation MIs. Uh, Now we'll move to the fun part, which is taking a little tour of where we actually do this work and what it is that we do in the cath lab uh, to help patients who are having a heart attack. So this is uh, an example of a modern cath lab, uh, one much like we would have here at UCSF or many other tertiary care hospitals. Uh, There's some pretty standard equipment, uh, which we have in these rooms. Uh, The procedure is done using x-rays, so we use live x-rays called fluoroscopy, and that allows us to see uh, into the chest and to see the heart and the heart arteries. The patient often lays on a table or gantry here, and we can then move the x-ray camera and the table uh, to look at different um, angles of the patient's uh, heart or anatomy. And the images uh, that we have achieved from that fluoroscopy and from the patient are shown on a monitor here. So what this might look like during an actual procedure, uh, here is an interventional cardiologist uh, standing uh, in blue uh, and the patient laying on the table. These procedures are all done sterilely, so the patient's site is prepped um, with antibiotic or cleansing material to reduce the um, likelihood of introducing bacteria or pathogens into the, the patient's bloodstream. Uh, and then everything is done sterilely and prepped. And in this case, you see the cardiologist is working over the patient and can see all of the images in the coronary angiogram in the the monitor. And basically what we do in the cardiac cath procedure is a three-step process. Uh, The first is that we need to get access to the heart. And so we insert a catheter uh, from the arm or the leg, uh, and we bring that catheter up through the aorta and into the heart. We then can bring that catheter or small uh, tube uh, to the heart arteries, And we can inject a little bit of x-ray dye or contrast uh, agent into the heart arteries. And then that allows our x-ray camera, the fluoroscopy that I just showed you, uh, to visualize the heart arteries. And we make these black and white uh, moving pictures uh, of the heart and the heart arteries. And it allows us to see if there are areas within the heart arteries that have a blockage or have a blood clot uh, that's causing a heart attack. So coming right back to the slide where we started, The idea in the cath lab is to understand what the patient's heart artery anatomy is and to actually visualize their heart arteries and to understand where the atherosclerosis uh, or where the blood clot may be. So the specifics of how we do that, uh, it's sort of a a three-step process, as I mentioned. The first step is, is we have to gain access to the patient's heart. And we don't uh, do uh, surgical open um, uh, incision uh, like might be done in, in open surgeries. Instead, we access everything through what we call a small uh, percutaneous um, access. So essentially, a small incision the size of your pinky fingernail uh, allows us uh, to do all the work that we need. And the most common places that we uh, will access is into the leg artery vein or the femoral artery just in the groin. Or now, much more commonly, in the wrist area, into the radial artery, uh, just below the base of the thumb. Um, Once we um, identify an artery that uh, is appropriate, we'll then uh, put a small sheath or tube it. Uh, This is an example of uh, leg artery access. The leg arteries tend to be much bigger. Previously, uh, this was the the primary way in which we um, accessed the heart it turns out that the bleeding risk and complication risks from this is slightly higher and so largely now both for patient comfort and safety we've moved to using the wrist artery and again we typically use the right hand we find the radial artery just at the base uh, below the base of the thumb and uh, with a small needle uh, we gain access into uh, that artery and then we put what's called a sheath this thin uh, plastic tube It looks a little bit like a sippy straw. It's about the same uh, diameter, about two millimeters in diameter, and a a length of about 10 centimeters or about five inches. And this tube then allows us to put all of our equipment, wires or balloons or any other equipment up and thread those through the arteries and up into the heart. Once we have uh, that sheath in, we can take a picture of the heart arteries. And this is a nice example of a radial angiogram showing the sheath again here in the radial artery. And then the x-ray or contrast shows the outline of the artery that carries blood from the arm down to the wrist and that's the pathway that we'll use to get up to the heart once we uh, have our access the next step is to engage our catheters into the heart arteries as i showed you earlier the heart arteries arise from the aorta and in every person they come off in a slightly different place but the anatomy is generally pretty consistent And so we have a series of catheters or plastic uh, tubes with a small lumen that are designed specifically to fit uh, into these heart arteries. Um, There's a number of different shapes of catheters since everyone is built a little bit differently. We have different sizes and shapes to accommodate for all sizes and shapes of uh, people. Once we engage these catheters into the heart arteries, we can then give X-ray dye and using our cameras, we can take pictures of all of those heart arteries. Importantly, uh, the heart is a 3D structure, and these arteries are traveling around uh, the heart in three dimensions, but our pictures are x-ray pictures on a flat screen, so roughly 2D images. And so when we look at uh, the heart arteries, we have to recognize we're looking um, at a highly simplified or two-dimensional view. And so to make up for that and really get the three-dimensionality, we need to look at the heart from multiple different views. So much like a portrait, we may take a picture from the front or from the side. Uh, We'll do the same for the heart arteries. Uh, We do that uh, using that X-ray machine. We have the patient on the table, the X-ray column itself, and the X-ray column can swing around and can take pictures uh, of the patient's heart from various different angles. We'll typically take angles from the left side, from the right side, uh, from above the head, and from the waist up. And these different angles allow us to get a full assessment of all of the coronary arteries. When we uh, do that, we lay out um, maps of the heart arteries, uh, as are shown here. The middle is what we might see on x-ray. To the right is uh, a stylized diagram. And each artery has a unique uh, common view that we expect to see. So oftentimes we'll take four pictures of the left-sided arteries since there are so many of them and we really need to see a lot of detail. The right coronary artery has a much simpler shape, looks like a big C, and typically three different X-ray views of that would be adequate. In terms of what we actually see in the cath lab, this is a good example here. This is a moving X-ray image, the fluoroscopy of the right heart artery. Up the center of the image here is the patient's spine. The heart is this general gray area here, and the heart arteries themselves are made of um, tissue, which doesn't get seen on X-ray. So if we were just to take an x-ray of this patient, we wouldn't see the heart arteries. But when we engage the catheter, we inject iodinated contrast, or x-ray dye, and that allows us to see the artery, which here is outlined in black. This is a very normal coronary artery. We see a black filling. It's very smooth, it looks like a tube, and then has many small little branches, much like the branches uh, that come off of a a tree leaf in the small distal veins. We can then change our catheter and look over towards the left-sided arteries. And this is a nice picture of the left main and left circumflex and left anterior descending artery. And again, really pretty normal arteries. Uh, In addition, we can take pictures of things other than just the heart arteries. Uh, In this uh, particular picture, we have a catheter that's placed inside the left ventricle, the main pumping chamber of the heart. And this allows us to see how well the heart is pumping. Uh, This is called the ventriculogram, And the black area is the blood inside the main pumping chamber. And we can see here that this particular heart is pumping very robustly, and all the walls that we see here are moving well. So this is a relatively normal study. Uh, This is less commonly done these days. Echocardiography gives us a really good view of the structure and function of the heart. But if we don't have that information immediately available, this is definitely one technique that we can use. So let's talk a little bit about definitive therapy so now that we have brought a patient to the cath lab and we can do coronary angiography how do we actually treat uh, heart attacks and blood clots? so there are three basic steps to angioplasty and pci or percutaneous coronary intervention Uh, in this uh, slide here we see that this red tube this is a heart artery this uh, orange stuff may be the plaque and the first step is is we have to put what we call small guide wire Uh, These wires are typically about 14 thousandths of an inch uh, so thinner than uh, a paperclip. They tend to be very flexible and pliable, much like a a small spring, Uh, really uh, very uh, soft so that they don't injure tissue. And we can thread using the fluoroscopic guidance these wires down through the heart artery uh, and past the blockage. Once we have those artery uh, wires down the artery, they serve as a guide rail, and we can then pass small catheters or tubes with balloons and other equipment over. And so typically a next step is, is we'll pass a catheter with a small balloon into the area of blockage. We'll then inflate that balloon, and that will push the plaque up and to the side, uh, opening up or making a channel for blood to to flow through. That's what we call predilation. Now, if we stop there only, that's called angioplasty. Uh, and up until about 1994, that was the extent of what we would do in the heart arteries, was place a balloon, inflate it, uh, and do an angioplasty. Unfortunately, a couple of the downsides to that is that there was a very large uh, percentage of the time that the artery uh, just started to renarrow again within a short period of time. That's called restenosis or recoil. And so it didn't leave a very durable result. Uh, The other concern uh, is in a small portion of cases, you could create a small rip uh, in the artery and that would lead to a blood clot formation and a worsening of the blood flow uh, and that could be a medical emergency. So in about 1994 or so, going on uh, 30 uh, years now, uh, we have used uh, what we call stents. Stents are small metallic scaffolds that we can implant into an area where we do an angioplasty uh, and they hold that vessel open. Uh, reduce the risks of re-stenosis or renarrowing of the artery uh, and help to uh, prevent any problems related to small rips or tears in the artery. So again, here, really comparing those two techniques, angioplasty and stenting or PCI. Angioplasty consists of the artery placing a wire, placing the balloon, inflating the balloon, and then taking out the balloon, leaving only with a dilation and a balloon result. And if you add the additional step of adding a um, stent, Uh, in, we typically will inflate a balloon inside of a stent uh, that will expand the balloon, uh, that will extend the stent, uh, which will then rest against the artery wall, and we then remove the balloon, leaving just the stent uh, inside the patient's blood vessels. Uh, The stent initially will sit inside what's called the lumen or the inner tract of the blood vessel, Uh, but over time, uh, the blood vessel naturally regrows a lining around the stent to incorporate it into the wall of the blood vessel when we do this, this is what's called stenting or PCI, percutaneous coronary intervention. Many patients will ask me, well, what exactly is a stent or what does it look like? Uh, This is an example of a stent. These days, we use what are called drug eluding or medicated stents, uh, and they typically have three parts to them. Uh, They have a metal alloy scaffold, so typically platinum chromium or cobalt chromium. Uh, this is a soft and flexible metallic material uh, that's woven into this cellular structure or pattern. Uh, and then this um, uh, alloy is impregnated with a polymer or a small uh, amount of plastic, and that polymer is then infused with a medication or a drug uh, that prevents re-narrowing or tissue growth within the stent. Um, when stents were first created uh, in the early 1990s, they were just made of this metallic uh, structure. And uh, what we saw over the next uh, decade to decade and a half was that the body would recognize this and form scar tissue or uh, endothelial proliferation uh, within the stent. And it would start to narrow down the stent. And so up to about a third of patients who had received uh, a stent um, for angioplasty uh, and stenting would come back uh, within 6 to 12 months and would have significant renarrowing of that stent. And so starting in about 2004, uh, now going on uh, 16 years, uh, we've moved to uh, what are called drug-eluting stents impregnated with medications uh, that uh, resist and prevent um, tissue formation and have dramatically reduced the rates of what we call instant restenosis or narrowing of the stent. So let's take an example or a look of a patient who comes to the cath lab uh, for PCI and how we actually do that. Uh, this is a patient uh, who uh, has an N-STEMI, uh, or um, chest pain, a positive troponin, some EKG changes. Uh, we now have uh, access or a catheter placed up through the wrist, uh, and this catheter is now engaging the right corner artery. And the contrast injection shows us, unlike the last artery that I showed you, this one has significant disease in it. The distal portion of the vessel down here where my hand is pointing is all uh, open, and this looks pretty good. But the entire proximal portion of the vessel is pretty narrowed in a number of places, and there may be an area of small amount of blood clot here. This is a non occlusive thrombus, this is an NSTEMI, there is still flow, but there is marked narrowing in the vessel. And so the way in which we treat this, again, those same three techniques, we put a small wire down, and then over the wire, a small balloon, and we inflate that balloon. We then, again, over that wire, put a stent, that metallic scaffold, which is uh, crimped on top of a balloon, and line that up in the area of narrowing. We can then blow up a balloon inside the stent, which dilates the stent and implants it into the wall of the vessel. In this particular case, one stent was not long enough. This patient received two stents. We can see here on the zoomed-in x-ray the uh, shadow of the stent. And after we've completed the intervention, we see the uh, repeat angiography here shows a much uh, larger dander for the entire proximal vessel here. And so this is a successfully treated right coronary artery with the placement of true drug-eluting stents. For the sake of comparison, on the left here is the initial, what that artery looked like before stenting, and on the right here, after stenting. So this would be a successful two vessel or two stent Uh, treatment of a patient with an NSTEMI, or a non-completely occluded uh, vessel. Take you to a second uh, case example. Uh, This is a 52-year-old patient uh, who was an Uber driver in San Francisco who came in with two hours of acute onset uh, chest pain. He described his symptoms as a classic uh, chest pressure on the left side and radiating to his left jaw. Uh, This EKG was obtained in the emergency department as soon as he arrived, and as you can see, significant ST elevations in uh, these three leads here, V2, 3, and 4. Uh, This is consistent with an ST elevation MI, and in this particular distribution of the EKG would suggest that that's in the artery on the front of the heart, the left anterior descending. So this patient was immediately brought to the catheterization laboratory uh, within uh, 30 minutes of arrival. An angiogram is done. And as we can see here on the left side, this is the right coronary artery, and this is normal. Uh, There's no significant disease here. It's open, there's blood flow. However, on the right image here, this is a coronary angiogram of the left coronary artery and the left anterior descending. And what you may appreciate here is that there's very slow blood flow, and then the blood flow or contrast flow stops right here at about where my arrow is, and there's no more blood flow down towards the rest of the heart. So this is a blood clot that's formed here in the mid-LAD, right in the middle of the heart, and it's occluding blood flow to the entire uh, middle to distal front wall of the heart. So the tip uh, and the anterior wall of the heart. So the way in which we treat this, again, we pass a wire, we put a balloon. Uh, So in this case, uh, the wire's down, and even after ballooning, uh, this patient uh, still doesn't have very good blood flow down the heart arteries. So this is a a nice segue into uh, introducing another technique that we can use in the cath lab, uh, which is called aspiration thrombectomy, clot removal. Uh, In this particular technique, we're able to use a catheter and uh, place that down into the vessel and then actually suck out blood clot. This is an example here. Here's the blood clot. Here's a wire that's passing through. We bring a catheter down and into the blood clot and then essentially create negative suction, a small vacuum inside that catheter, And as we do that, it will start to suck out or remove that blood clot and pull it out of the patient's body. That can be done using a small syringe uh, or a mechanical uh, machine, much like a a small vacuum. The result of that can be uh, quite uh, impressive. On the left here is just the fluoro image of us uh, removing um, the the blood clot, but this is what we actually pulled out of this particular artery. You can see that long red worm-like entity, and that is a thrombus that was occluding the entire left anterior descending artery. So uh, we then proceeded on with stent placement. As you can see, now that we've removed the blood clot, we have better blood flow. We place a stent and yet still better blood flow. Uh, In this particular case, this patient had uh, still a fair amount of blood clot uh, left in the blood vessel. And at this point, the next best treatment was to use uh, powerful blood thinning agents and so the patient was placed on um, blood thinners for the next 72 hours. So a combination of ballooning, aspiration thrombectomy or clot removal, uh, stenting, and then uh, using medications like heparin um, and uh, other strong antiplatelets, ultimately got this final result here, where you can see um, uh, great blood flow to the entire heart artery. So this is successful treatment of a patient who presented with uh, an acute ST elevation MI due to a blood clot in the left uh, anterior descending artery. I'll show you one more um, technique that we can use here before we wrap up and talk about sort of what comes after the cath lab. And that is that not all heart artery blockages are created equal. Um, Many times the heart artery blockages may be created from a soft blood clot uh, that we can easily use the balloon to expand or a catheter to aspirate or um, uh, remove from the body. Uh, But sometimes uh, these blockages can become very calcified. So uh, if you've ever looked down the drain pipes uh, in an old house, you might see that hard white deposits uh, in the drain. And that's calcium from the water that started to deposit into the drain pipe. And a similar phenomenon can happen in the heart arteries uh, where calcium all of these white areas uh, starts to solidify the heart artery plaques and they're no longer soft like cholesterol but are very hard like rock Uh, and unfortunately these can't be well treated with um, with just balloons alone so we do have other um, technologies in this particular case this is something called a rotational atherectomy again over that guide wire this is an area where we take a small drill and in this case, uh, this drill is about two millimeters in diameter. It spins at 150,000 RPMs uh, and using a diamond uh, coated burr, essentially ablates or sands down all of that calcium uh, and then allows us uh, to, once that calcium is expanded, to then come back with a small balloon uh, to open up that blockage uh, and to place a hard stent. And that's what you'll see here. This now is a catheter with a stent. The stent can then be expanded and successfully deployed in an area where there was severe calcium. And that technique is called rotational atherectomy. It's uh, something that is probably used in about 10 to 15 percent of our cases here, and they tend to be the more complex cases uh, for patients with uh, more significant or calcified disease. Moving on to uh, just our last uh, topic of the talk. So for our patients who have come uh, into the hospital with a heart attack where we've recognized uh, that early, we've made the diagnosis using our EKG, uh, our uh, troponin uh, testing, uh, perhaps an echocardiogram. We've initiated early medical therapies, as we talked about with blood thinning agents, uh, statin therapies, and beta blockers, uh, and then taken them to the cath lab and opened the artery uh, with a balloon uh, stent, uh, and if needed, a thrombectomy catheter or um, a, um, a rotational atherectomy. What comes after? And so I think equally important is management of uh, life uh, and uh, the treatment uh, of the heart attack and stent after the cath lab. And I think a couple of key uh, pearls here. So really, uh, once uh, patients have heart artery disease, that is a lifelong uh, disease. The stents are uh, temporary fixes for the problem that we found, the blockage of the blood clot but really an aggressive focus on all of the risk factors to prevent future uh, coronary artery blockages and future heart attacks is critical. So we'll start right at the top and work our way around. Uh, For all patients who've had heart artery disease and who've had a heart attack or stent placements, uh, they should be on a baby aspirin, 81 milligrams uh, indefinitely. Um, And for patients who've had uh, an acute coronary syndrome or heart attack and a recent stent placement, Uh, They should be on a second antiplatelet agent, like clopidogrel or ticagrelor, typically for 12 months after. Uh, That combination of two medications is called dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, That's because it's two antiplatelet agents, uh, commonly known as DAPT, D-A-P-T. And our standard of care for most patients after heart attack uh, is dual antiplatelet therapy uh, for 12 months. There is increasingly new data for uh, patients who require blood thinners for other reasons, uh, like blood thinners for uh, atrial fibrillation or DBT and pulmonary embolism, uh, that those blood thinners work pretty well here, and they can be used in combination with only one antiplatelet agent. Uh, so again, most patients after stents uh, should be on aspirin for life and a second antiplatelet agent uh, for a year, that's the DAPT for one year, uh, unless they're on another blood thinning agent, um, which can serve as one of those two. Moving to the left, a second mainstay of therapy for preventing um, future heart attack and heart disease progression is really aggressive management of cholesterol. Uh, So, again, maintaining a um, really well-treated LDL or low-density lipoprotein level with a goal reduction more than 50%, and ideally a a goal LDL less than uh, 70, uh, using medications like statins uh, and others that Dr. Wong may have talked about. Um, All patients who've had a heart attack should be on a statin if tolerated, uh, and if not tolerated or not effective, uh, newer classes of medications, like the PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, would be appropriate. Um, If patients have diabetes, um, very good diabetic uh, control uh, with oral medicines or insulin uh, to achieve um, uh, euglycemia or normal um, fasting blood sugars. Uh, And particular agents like SGLT2 inhibitors are newer classes of um, diabetic uh, agents that have been found to be helpful in both heart disease and in the management of diabetes. Um, Shifting away from just treating uh, the um, medical conditions a little bit towards lifestyle, uh, smoking cessation, uh, certainly a must for patients who've had a a coronary stent. Uh, Continuing to smoke after placement of coronary stent significantly increases the risk of a blood clot forming in the stent or re-narrowing in stents. Um, Exercise, and we recommend uh, typically 150 minutes uh, per week of moderate intensity exercise, uh, or uh, 75 minutes of very vigorous intensity exercise. That's getting the heart rate up to 60 to 80% of the maximally tolerated um, heart rate. Um, So for most patients, it's 220 minus your age, and and multiply that by about 80%. Uh, Depending on your age, that may be somewhere between 130 and 150 beats per minute. As part of that, cardiac rehabilitation. Uh, has been shown to be a very effective program uh, to help get patients active uh, exercising and to really learn how to push their bodies in a safe and appropriate way uh, when recovering from heart attack. Uh, Finally, on the lifestyle side, uh, diet, ensuring that an appropriate uh, diet um, balanced in salt, uh, cholesterol, and uh, glycemic-type foods um, to make sure that you're meeting the cholesterol, uh, diabetes, blood pressure goals. Uh, And circling back to uh, hypertension management, Uh, The goal for blood pressure control for a patient uh, after a heart attack is relatively strict. We really target uh, less than 130 over 80 uh, and using both uh, lifestyle and weight loss and then pharmacotherapy or medications where needed. So with with that said, I will uh, stop there and just summarize over the last uh, 60 minutes or so what we've talked about and talked a little bit about what a heart attack is uh, caused by a complete uh, occlusion or partial occlusion of the blood vessels that feed blood to the heart that results in some common or classic symptoms uh, of uh, angina uh, or chest pain, most often a pressure-like sensation on the left side of the chest. uh, And uh, that can create a significant heart attack uh, with significant downstream complications if not recognized or treated uh, urgently. Uh, We talked a little bit about the epidemiology uh, of heart attack and how frequently patients present with both chest pain and heart attack symptoms. We talked about using uh, EKGs and troponins uh, to make the diagnosis. Uh, Using initial medical therapies uh, to both thin the blood, uh, control the cholesterol, and lower the oxygen demand of the heart uh, on the way to really getting patients to the cath lab early if there is an acute ST elevation MI uh, for the purposes of doing an angiogram procedure to lay out the coronary anatomy uh, and find areas of blockage. And then really treating definitively with interventional therapies like angioplasty, uh, stents, thrombectomy, or atherectomy where needed. Um, And then finally, recognizing once we've uh, established the diagnosis of coronary artery disease, that that really is a lifelong uh, management and focusing on managing life uh, and the underlying disease process with a multifactorial approach. So with that said, I'll stop there and open it up for questions. Thank you so much for your time this evening.
1: Great, fantastic talk, very clear, uh, wonderful uh, images and and, uh, videos. So we have uh, a bunch of really great questions. Um, I hope we will have time. We have 11 so far. Hope we'll have time for all of them. I'll just take them as they came in. Uh, so first is, can anything stop the progression of coronary disease? Yeah,
0: that's a absolutely great question. So the, the goal, of, if I'm doing my job great as a cardiologist, is that I or my colleague should never meet you in the cath lab. Uh, And so I think a lot of this would be uh, back to Dr. Long's talk, thinking about the risk factors that lead towards coronary artery disease. The same things that sort of start the process also progress the process. So healthy lifestyle, avoiding uh, tobacco or smoking other things, um, good control of blood pressure and cholesterol and diabetic control, uh, good weight management and uh, routine activity. Um, Particularly, I think the most data really is around very aggressive lipid-lowering strategies Uh, and using uh, medications like statins or even PCSK9s, driving lipid levels really low, uh, may be associated with um, reducing
1: the progression
0: of uh, of coronary disease.
1: Great. And in asymptomatic coronary disease, would you use multiple antiplatelet drugs?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. So a lot of what we talked about tonight was heart attacks. Um, So there is a very large portion of patients who have coronary disease. If it's truly asymptomatic, uh, the first question would be, how did we know that there's coronary disease there? But if you've had a stress test or imaging or an angiogram that's shown a coronary artery disease, uh, if you have no symptoms, the general recommendation now would be for a single antiplatelet agent only. So that would be a baby aspirin for the management of chronic coronary disease. Uh, increasingly, I think we're starting to understand that if you have another reason to be on a blood thinner, like uh, Eliquis or Apixaban for AFib or for DVT, Uh, That probably is also fine in the management of chronic coronary disease. And uh, in that setting, you could drop the antiplatelets and just be on an anticoagulant.
1: Great. Is there a risk from the contrast agent used? How much is used in a typical procedure?
0: Outstanding. Really good question. So a lot of medical imaging uses iodinated contrast. Um, There are small risks associated with that. Um, Some patients will have an allergy to iodinated contrast, and that can result in a rash, um, usually treated with um, antihistamines. Some patients may have uh, anaphylaxis or severe allergic reaction to that. Uh, and if that's uh, something that you know about your personal history, it's worth letting people know and we pre medicate to help to avoid that because that can be life threatening. Uh, the main side effect we worry about, though, is the uh, impact on the kidneys. And so patients who have reduced kidney function, particularly uh, diabetics uh, or patients who've had uh, kidney disease and high blood pressure for a long time there can be an increased risk of kidney dysfunction and possible need for dialysis. For most patients in the cath lab, that uh, is around one to 2%. It may be related to the amount of contrast that we use. Uh, Typically, we can do an angiogram using about 30 to 50 milliliters of uh, X-ray dye. Uh, Depending on the complexity of the disease that we're treating, a typical coronary intervention may be anywhere between 100 uh, and 200 milliliters of dye. Uh, And increasingly, since we are seeing so many patients with kidney disease where this is a problem, we've actually developed techniques for very low contrast and zero contrast PCI, where we can do these procedures uh, using uh, less than uh, an ounce of of dye uh, for some patients and to minimize the
1: effect on the kidneys. All right. If one believes they are having a heart attack, should they immediately take aspirin? And is ibuprofen a substitute? Excellent
0: questions. So yes, um, if you believe you're having a heart attack, uh, taking four baby aspirin, uh, preferably the type that you can chew or non uh, is recommended, uh, and that can be beneficial. Uh, taking ibuprofen is not, and in fact can have the opposite effect. Um, so do not take ibuprofen in substitute. Ibuprofen can actually make platelets a little bit stickier, uh, and so it does not have the desired antiplatelet effect, uh, can also um, uh, increase irritation of the stomach. Um, that is also something to be said in that um, patients who have known coronary disease, who who have had a recent heart attack, should avoid the chronic use of NSAID medications or medicines like ibuprofen. Um, using ibuprofen more than you know every day uh, can increase the risk of heart attack events.
1: And I'll I'll add a, a, a kind of a nuance to this, which is how do you counsel people regarding? When to trigger the decision to call 911 or go to the ER? Since, as you said, chest pain is so common. What, how do you suggest everyone think about, well, I'm having, you know, my chest kind of bothering me. Should I go to the emergency room? How do you decide when to pull that trigger?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think. Um, Part of it is knowing your own health history and your risks. And so if you're somebody who's had heart stents, had open heart surgery, had heart problems before, um, or you have, you know, you are a smoker or have high cholesterol, high um, uh, blood lipids or diabetes, you're certainly at higher risk. Uh, and uh, what we advise is if you're having symptoms, if they don't get better on their own within five minutes, uh, or if you've been prescribed nitroglycerin and you've taken that by the instructions, one tab every five minutes up to three tablets, uh, that would be time to consider going to the uh, the ER. Um, if you have a fleeting chest pain that gets better after a couple of minutes, um, probably fine to wait and to see. But if those pains continue to come back, then again, I think probably worth an initial evaluation.
1: Great. And then during a procedure, how do you tell if the blockage is calcified or not?
0: There are a couple of ways to do that. Uh, Calcium uh, looks like bone, and we can see it on the x-ray, whereas we can't see non-calcified arteries. So in some cases, if the calcification is very severe, we'll actually just see it on the angiogram. Um, Increasingly now, we have more tools to look at the vessels and to detect calcium. And so we have what's called intravascular imaging. We can actually put a small camera inside the vessel over the wire in place of the balloon, um, and either using uh, sound waves, uh, which is called intravascular ultrasound, or using light waves, which is called optical coherent tomography. We can take pictures of the vessel from the inside out, and that'll also show us if there's
1: calcium. Um, you like this one. So can removing or stenting a clot jar loose pieces of the clot where it can cause blockage somewhere downstream?
0: Yeah, that that is uh, definitely a possibility. So it's a pretty rare uh, complication, um, but uh, a couple of things I would say are of note. If there's a lot of clot in the heart arteries and we're trying to pull it out using the aspiration thrombectomy I showed uh, you, one of the complications is is we can pull that clot out of the heart and it can travel elsewhere, like the brain, uh, and cause a stroke. So a very small risk of stroke, particularly if there's a lot of clot in the heart and we're pulling it out. The other place that we can see is uh, if there's clot in the heart and we balloon it or put our wires down, we can push it further down into the the vessels. Um, And when that happens, we have a couple of options. We can do more ballooning to push that clot aside. Uh, We can give um, medications directly into the heart uh, vessels to try to break down the clot, Uh, or we can continue pretty powerful IV blood thinning medications for 12 to 24 hours. And that often helps the body to dissolve the clot
1: is there a lithotripsy-like procedure for coronary disease? I I think the idea being something that can be done from outside. Um,
0: Yeah, that's a a, a very timely uh, question too, and I didn't include that in this talk, but there is a new technology that we can use that is lithotripsy in the coronary vessels. So we don't have anything that's extra coronary or extra body, uh, similar to what you might think of as um, extracorporeal lithotripsy for kidney stones, but we do have intracoronary lithotripsy. Uh, and essentially the way that works is, as we do the angiogram in all the ways I've shown you, we put a wire down, uh, but we have a special balloon. Uh, the, the, the trade name of it is called shockwave, but essentially it's intravascular lithotripsy. And within the balloon, there are two um, uh, light pulses, and we can pulse up to 80 times uh, with these light pulses, and it creates a, a sound shockwave that can fracture calcium from within the vessel. Um, it was introduced in the United States and FDA approved, I think, about two years ago, so it's a relatively newer technology. Uh, but we've had a great experience here and it's been very helpful in treating calcification that we couldn't treat well with other modalities.
1: How long does stents last?
0: Uh, it's, uh, how long does platinum last? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the uh, there's, I think, two answers to that question. Uh, The stent itself will last forever. Um, It does not degrade. The metal will stay in your body uh, until uh, and and even when you pass. I think the more relevant question that folks get to is how long are stents doing their job? And so we put the stent in to open up the blood vessel and and increase blood flow. Uh, And in most patients, the stent will stay open and do its job uh, for the remainder of their life. But there is a residual risk of the stent renarrowing. And on average, that's about uh, seven to 10% risk that the stent will renarrow in a year for some patients. Uh, that's higher in patients who continue to smoke, higher for patients who have diabetes or kidney disease.
1: Great, Christian, you're doing such an awesome job answering these questions. The questions just keep uh, uh, adding, adding and adding, uh, or the participants keep adding questions. Is bypass surgery still done?
0: Yeah, uh, another really wonderful question. So yes, and there are cases where bypass surgery may be better than stents. Um, Tonight's talk really focused on uh, acute heart attacks and in acute heart attack setting, really in 2022, uh, stenting is the procedure of choice. But for patients who have chronic coronary artery disease, uh, that is atherosclerosis or significant blockages throughout the heart arteries uh, that is chronic, so not acute, not a blood clot, uh, and causing symptoms, uh, those are patients who may be candidates for bypass. And we see there are certain settings where bypass probably works better than stents. Uh, that's in patients with diabetes who have multiple blockages, uh, patients uh, with diabetes and left main disease, uh, or patients with left main disease and a slightly reduced heart pumping function. Uh, and those three settings generally bypass uh, if the patient is otherwise a good surgical candidate may be preferred. Um, at UCSF, we now have what we call our heart team, and so any patient with complex coronary artery disease, a team of non-invasive cardiologists, interventionalists, and heart surgeons reviews the entire case and the angiogram to actually make informed um, recommendations as to what we think is going to be the best short and long-term therapy for a patient.
1: So this audience member mentions her mom who had heart disease and was put on aspirin and unfortunately experienced a lot of um, bleeding related to macular degeneration and went blind. And so the, the question is specifically about blood thinners that may uh, not cause bleeding in the eyes. But uh, more broadly, of course, this is uh, related to the common tension between bleeding and clotting and various ways to uh, mitigate that.
0: Yeah, that is, I think, in the world of cardiology, that is a common tension that we have, because, you know, almost anything that we want to treat, whether it is um, atrial fibrillation, uh, clots in the heart, heart attacks, strokes, uh, less uh, blood um, clotting is better, Um, yet that's at odds with things like bleeding from the GI system or bleeding elsewhere. So I think uh, I'd offer a couple of tenants, and often it is a case-by-case basis. Largely, we've seen that for primary prevention. Um, that is patients who don't have established disease, it's probably not helpful to be on antiplatelet or blood thinning agents. So if you're on a baby aspirin a day, just in case, um, that's probably not helpful. For patients who've had a heart attack or who have heart stent placement, um, it probably is beneficial to be on one agent. If they're at least a year out from their stent or from their heart attack, uh, the least potent agent possible is reasonable. Up until now, that's often been baby aspirin, uh, but I think we're seeing increasing data that uh, medications like clopidogrel or Plavix may be just as efficacious and have less incidence of GI bleeding than others for some patients, and we may move more towards that. Uh, but I do think it's a case-by-case basis, and if somebody is at higher risk for bleeding or has acute or ongoing bleeding, uh, definitely worth discussing with their cardiologist the risks and benefits.
1: Uh, I'm going to combine two questions here, so uh, a very broad one. Uh, are there risks related to the stent? placement. And then the other somewhat related question is, can the stents be removed? And is there a situation where you might want to do that?
0: Yeah. So um, uh, every patient who undergoes an angiogram or sending procedure, we have a a pretty thorough discussion about the risks and benefits um, for the procedure. The uh, risks for an angiogram procedure are about 1 in 1,000 or 0.1% of a major complication. Uh, And those risks could be injury to the blood vessel. Uh, As I showed you, we go through the wrist or the leg artery, and rarely those vessels can be injured and have to be repaired occasionally with surgery. Uh, There's a small risk of stroke, uh, of heart attack, um, or of injuring the kidneys in patients who already have kidney injury. Uh, For angiogram, that's one in a 1,000. For stenting procedures, it's about 1% or one in 100. And can stents be removed? Uh, No. Uh, Once the stents are implanted, uh, they're implanted into the vessel over a period of a few uh, months, the heart uh, artery starts to grow a lining around the stent. Uh, We cannot take them out. Um, If there is narrowing in the stent, we can balloon inside the stent. We can uh, put another stent inside a stent if need be. Uh, And somebody who's had a stent could also potentially go for bypass surgery if needed after and bypass around the stent. So there are still options, but generally the stent can't be taken out.
1: Uh, Great. These next two questions that came together are kind of uh deserving of hour-long talks of in and of themselves so feel free to give the <laughs> the summary version uh so what is involved with cardiac rehab is number one uh but we uh, you know recognize the importance of that so probably worth uh explaining and then second the role of stress testing
0: awesome yeah uh cardiac rehab this is this is awesome i i love cardiac rehab and i'm a big fan of it and i think we started a program here at ucsf two years ago which has been amazing Um, I think about sort of cardiac rehab as the ultimate physical and mental therapy for getting your heart uh, better after any acute or chronic insult. Essentially, um, most cardiac rehab programs, they come in different flavors or forms, but it's roughly a three uh, month um, period. Uh, They can be in person or home, uh, where you come to a center maybe three times a week and you get um, exercise therapy on a prescription plan, slowly increasing that exercise uh, over a period of time based on how your body is handling it. It's done in a supervised fashion. So typically watching your heart rate and blood pressure to make sure that you're safely managing and handling that. I think other important components of cardiac rehab are um, counseling on diet, on exercise, on healthy lifestyle, smoking cessation, if that's a piece uh, of it. Uh, Often uh, folks who have um, had heart disease can have some depression or anxiety or worry about that. And that can also be an integrated piece of um, of the cardiac rehab therapy. So think about it as a large sort of mind-body, physical wellness uh, for recovery after heart attack, but also after other acute cardiac conditions. Uh, And your second question, Greg, was? The
1: role of stress testing.
0: Yes, Uh, so in the setting of heart attack, there's no role for stress testing. So for patients who are coming in, uh, EKG or troponins clearly show there's damage to the heart, we're worried about a blood clot. Uh, That is not a place in which we wanna stress the heart. Um, Stress testing has a role in the diagnosis for chronic um, symptomatic um, coronary disease or for chest pain. So if you have chest discomfort or chest pain, it's coming when you walk or it's coming after you eat a meal. We're not sure whether it's uh, uh, gastroesophageal reflux or musculoskeletal or coronary blockages. It may be reasonable to do a stress test. And essentially what a stress test does is it stresses the heart, it makes you work harder, either with exercise or with medications. And then we look for evidence of ischemia or lack of blood flow. Um, And so it can be helpful in helping us understand if the chest discomfort or symptoms folks are feeling are due to the heart and the heart arteries or not.
1: Great, this is a great question because it addresses a fascinatingly counterintuitive uh, phenomenon in, in your field which is, does early stenting in coronary disease uh, prior to an event uh, such as an MI or stroke offer benefit, or does it prevent, can you prevent a heart attack uh, by stenting ahead of time?
0: Unfortunately, the answer is is probably no. Um, And so uh, it has to do with a couple of reasons. So first of all, when we do an angiogram um, and we see heart artery disease, Um, Typically, the blockages that cause symptoms uh, in folks who have stable disease, not heart attacks, are more than 70%. And so if you've got 10, 20, 30% plaque, those typically aren't obstructing blood, uh, so they're typically not causing symptoms. And in that case, we don't stent those because they're not going to help you to feel better. Um, But we would stent something that is 70, 80, or 90% and causing symptoms. On the flip side, though, it turns out the blockages that may cause the heart attacks are the ones that are only 10, 20, or 30%. And so those are not the ones that we would stent anyway. Um, And we've seen that in folks who come to the cath lab, they get a stent, and then they come back with a heart attack some period of time later. Um, What we have found helpful in reducing the risk of heart attack is not stenting, uh, but is actually all the great medical therapies we talk about. So being on a cholesterol-reducing medication, getting the LDL way down, that is much more likely to prevent a future plaque rupture than a stent may be.
1: doctor sony Soni's been extraordinarily uh, patient with us and, and done a really fantastic job with both the talk and answering questions. So um, I'll finish up with the last one uh, from Corey, which has to do with um, the X-ray, um, the, the potential harms of X-ray to the operators. And the question is, do, you know, do the operators step away? Uh, what are the, how, how do you avoid the 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 negative consequences of the radiation exposure?
0: Yeah, uh, really good uh, question. And certainly as, you know, as a patient, hopefully you have, you know, one or, or two or no angiograms in your life. But as an interventional cardiologist, uh, you know, I do hundreds of these a year and over a lifetime may do thousands. Um, so radiation safety and protection is really important. And I think there are kind of three um, key aspects to it. So number one, the equipment is continuously getting better and better. And so we can uh, get good images with less and less radiation. Um, number two is thinking about how we use it. We can certainly adjust the settings and how we're taking pictures and the clarity and quality of the imaging that we need. And so our own imaging habits um, can can have a lot uh, to do with that. Uh, and then number three is personal protective equipment and shielding. And so, using uh, shields both around the patient and uh, we wear full lead suits when we're in the cath or EP labs uh, to protect ourselves. So, I think the combination of the equipment, the shielding, or personal protection, um, I think all are important. Broadly, in radiation protection management, there's the concept of TDS, or time, distance, and shielding, minimizing the amount of time that we're using radiation maximizing our distance or stepping away from it uh, and using shielding like the lead suits to um, help to reduce the risk to myself and all of my my staff members
1: all right well wanted to thank everyone in the audience for your attention and your your great questions and your engagement and once again to dr Uh, sony for a fantastic talk
0: you've been listening to a podcast by university of california television for more information about this program or uctv